KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the earthquake in Israeli politics. Amy Willens will comment on the end of Bibi Netanyahu after 12 years as prime minister and on the new governing coalition there that includes, for the first time in Israeli history, an Israeli-Palestinian Islamist party as part of the government. Amy, who was Jerusalem bureau chief for The New Yorker, will talk about what this might mean for Palestinians inside Israel and on the West Bank and in Gaza. Also later in the show, TV talk with Ella Taylor. She will review Lupin or Lupin, the French comic heist series about sort of Robin Hood, who's a black immigrant reckoning with racism in France and the country's legacy of plunder. Season two opens Friday on Netflix. But first, what does Joe Manchin want? Doesn't he want Democrats to have equal voting rights? For that, we turn to Alan Minsky. Of course, he's former program director here at KPFK and now executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. That's that nationwide grassroots group that works with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Hi, Alan. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Well, this week, our friends are furious at Joe Manchin or despairing about Joe Manchin because over the weekend, he declared he would not vote for the Democrats' big voting rights bill, the For the People Act. And as you said here last week, if this doesn't pass, Republicans are likely to take control of the House in the 2022 midterms. They may win the White House itself in 2024. But before we talk about Joe Manchin, I want to talk briefly about the Republicans and their new efforts to make it harder to vote, something they've been working on for decades, but there's something new since Trump's defeat in 2020. They're no longer focusing just on making it harder to vote. Now they're making it easier for their judges in their state legislatures to overturn elections they have lost. They're rewriting the rules to make it easier for Republicans to win elections without winning the most votes. This is a radically new and frightening tactic, and Texas is leading the way. Uh, Texas Democrats in the state legislature, of course, walked out and prevented a vote on this bill right now. Uh, what, what do you think about what's happening in Texas? I think I think Joe Stalin um, once uh, sort of summarized his approach to democracy by saying it doesn't really matter who votes, it matters who counts the votes. And I think this is current Republican strategy. Texas is Texas. I think what maybe some of a KPFK's listeners are less aware of, this is happening in states across the country, the majority of which are controlled by Republican state legislatures. And so the restriction on same-day voting registration, throw that out, on the number of polling places, uh, on everything that makes it difficult to register to vote in all of these uh, countries, mail-in ballots, anything that can expand the electorate is just being squeezed and thrown out. Now, of course, it extends to challenging ballots, uh, reviewing ballots, coming up the results you want <laughs> and declaring that as a pathway and also empowering potentially state legislatures to have final say in the process. Not just in Texas, this is going on in many states across the country. Contrary to the way Republicans are often represented um, by responsible journalists and on KPFK, 
um, they are actually very savvy about what they need to do in order to maintain their power. Let me just describe the, the other scary approach. Texas wants to lower the standard for evidence that gives judges the power to reverse election results, to reject and reverse election results. Georgia's taken a slightly different but equally ominous route, which is uh, to allow members of the state legislature or county commissioners or the state elections board to request an investigation of any county's election superintendent. And if they find the county is, quote, underperforming in elections, they can replace that county's election board with a single individual who could fire anyone uh, working for the county board of elections. These are the people who maintain the list of registered voters, uh, who make changes in polling places, and most important, the people who certify county election results could be changed in Georgia if an investigation finds the county is, quote, underperforming. The key here, of course, is that in Georgia, as in lots of other states, almost all the Democratic votes come from just a couple of counties. So changing the election officials in just two or three counties, Atlanta and its surrounding area, could will make Republicans the winners uh, in Georgia. Um, and the state legislature is claiming the power to do that. So they've got some, some, uh, some very dangerous and scary alternatives to how to win, uh, how they can claim victory in elections, which in fact uh, they have lost. Now, the Democrats have a way of stopping this. Uh, they could pass the For the People Act. Remind us about the For the People Act. Well, first let me say that our um, uh, Progressive Democrats of America, our Georgia state coordinator, Terrence Dix, sits on his election board in Augusta, Georgia. Um, not the place where you're going to rack up a huge vote for the Democratic Party, but nonetheless, holding the line. And he is directly experiencing already uh, efforts to uh, remove him and remove the Democratic members from that election board in Georgia. So it's very real. It's impacting people. The people in the region know fully about it. But, and they also understand they need federal intervention to prevent this from happening. That federal intervention is the For the People Act. And, you know, usually... When you have a Congress and you have a president, you have two years to get your legislative work done. This is an instance where for this law to be passed and for it to have its the, the impact we need it to have right now, it needs to be passed um, in the next six weeks, really, six weeks to, to two months. By the way, you know, Chuck Schumer, head of the Senate, and this is, you know, really where this matters is the U.S. Senate, because it's, it's already passed the House. H.R. 1, the For the People Act, has passed the House. That means it is now with the Senate, and the legislation perfectly mirrors the House legislation in the Senate. Okay, the For the People Act is awaiting action in the Senate. Chuck Schumer says he's going to bring it up for a vote in the next couple of weeks. Joe Manchin says he won't vote for it. And if Joe Manchin won't vote for it, it won't even get a majority. So the question is what to do about that. There is some talk among Democrats about bringing up the bill in a form that it can be amended and trying to find a version of the For the People Act reduced in scope that Joe Manchin would support. Uh, what do you think about that as a strategy for the Democrats? Well, we do not support any amendments to uh, that would water down the For the People Act. We think that Joe Manchin is heavily, heavily invested in 
bringing things back to his constituents in West Virginia on a whole range of bills that are under consideration. One of the slightly hopeful signs I've seen on this front was the excellent journalist Ryan Grimm from The Intercept pointed out that Republicans are not confident that that Manchin um, will not bend. It's always important maybe to, you know, look through the world through your opponent's eyes. I mean, you have to do that in sports, right, to understand what you're contending with. In fact, I think some of them have said that they're anticipating uh, that some bending will occur. So what is that bending? Joe Manchin, while he has said he will not vote for the For the People Act, and he hasn't said what in the For the People Act he objects to. So there isn't even a way to shape it to accommodate his apparent wishes. He has said he will vote for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is the one that restores the the Justice Department oversight of elections that was removed by John Roberts Supreme Court, what, six or eight years ago now. Well, Manchin, what Manchin said, I thought, I thought you could discern from what he said on Sunday that, that his ostensible objection had to do with allowing the states to determine uh, how voting proceeds in the states, uh, whereas the Voting Rights Act is just universal about the individual's right to vote. Um, so again, that's why the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, as excellent a piece and necessary a piece of legislation it is to be passed, it doesn't pertain to what we need to have happen in the next six to eight weeks, which is the outlawing of gerrymandering so we can actually have fair elections in all the states that are going to try to set up districts that and, and set in procedures in motion that will overwhelmingly favor Republicans. But there's still one more problem. Even if Joe Manchin votes for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, even if there are 50 Dem- all 50 Democrats plus Vice right. President Kamala Harris, this is still subject to a filibuster, and Joe Manchin says he will not vote to reform the filibuster. That is the whole ball game, as you've said here more than once. Where do we stand today on filibuster reform? One of the problems we have with the contemporary Democratic Party compared to the Republican Party is even as outlandish and obscene as the Republican Party has become, the, the myth and wish for bipartisanship, this legacy of Clintonism, of a more moderate and right-wing leaning Democratic Party is still very alive in the hearts of members of the Democratic Caucus. As we saw throughout the Obama uh, years, when, remember when Obama either had 60 or 59 votes in the Senate, you couldn't get a single vote from a Republican. They had an Iron Clan discipline on their party um, so the Democrats ha- don't have that to the same degree within their caucus. When, however, having said that, and knowing that the Republicans won't bend, in the context of the filibuster blocking things moving forward that do not have 60 votes and cannot go to reconciliation, so they are items that are largely social agenda items, voting rights, civil rights, etc. those items a few of them may have a few Republicans cross over for a few votes. But one thing you will never, ever, ever get a Republican to bend on are any of these voting rights measures. The party has complete ironclad discipline around understanding that their entire capacity to compete on a national level is contingent upon these kind of voting right restrictions 
no way, shape, or form you'll ever get a vote. Therefore, even if you get rid of the filibuster, you need 50 votes. The problem right now is even to get to the filibuster, we have two, not just one, but two U.S. senators who stand in the way, one of whom is actually a co-sponsor of the For the People Act in the Center, and that's Kristen Sinema. But to get to removing this filibuster that blocks things and requires you to have 60 votes to get passage of a bill, we have to get both Sinema and Manchin to go along with breaking with the filibuster. Now we can talk a little bit about horse trading in the filibuster. There are different levels of steps that could be put in place, including the idea that they have to go back to the old school practice of standing up there and talking and talking and talking until the thing gets to come through for a vote. And that is something that over the past few weeks, Manchin has said that maybe he's more open to than just straight removal of the filibuster. And maybe we'll see some movement with cinema on that front. How effective it will be, I don't know. I think Republicans will do what they can to tag team and block up all motion in the Senate to try to prevent this from happening. So I think we really do need the whole thing to go away. And that's going to be tricky to achieve, but let's keep our eyes on the prize, put the, keep the pressure going. Chuck Schumer, activist Chuck, is going to be very involved in a national effort on the week of June 21st to June 25th to support the For the People Act, probably bringing it to a floor, you know, really exposing where the fault lines are and also mobilizing activism focused and concentrated in D.C., but also around the country for these issues the week of June 21st to June 25th. So, you know, I've never been to a demonstration that I know of with Chuck Schumer previously, but I think I'm going to be at one soon. Chuck Schumer, our leader. You know, I opened by saying, what does Joe Manchin want? Let us just remember that Joe Manchin comes from the second most Trumpish Republican state in the United States. Only Wyoming had a higher... Well, let me, let me say something about this, though. Yes, that is true. Second highest. Absolutely correct. But here's the thing. If you are to rank the states that would benefit the most from all that is in what is actually about to be achieved, the passage of a national infrastructure product, uh, bill, and actually it might end up being a couple of them because they're getting broken up into parts and may end up still being one big one. But I bet you West Virginia, I put money on it being the state per capita that benefits the most. Okay. Yeah. Because this is the state that needs transition away from fossil fuels. A disproportionate amount of its uh, economy has been revolving around coal. Of course, people know this stuff. And there's awareness of it. There's a desire to channel, um, you know, the, the remaking of the economy uh, throughout what I know some people in the region don't like the term Rust Belt, but what people don't understand of is the Rust Belt or the big coal uh, manufacturing areas. And so West Virginia would really, really benefit. And that means there's a lot of leverage there for old Joe Manchin. And we understand what he wants. And uh, I, I think a, a good classical political congressional negotiator could see him move on the votes we want to see him move. Yeah, and let's remember, Joe Manchin did vote to convict Donald Trump uh, on the during the impeachment trial. He did vote for the pandemic uh, relief bill. So, you know, he's not a Republican. He comes from a very Republican state right now. He needs to pay attention to how what this will do for his constituents. And I think President Biden, Chuck Schumer are going to be reminding him uh, of that, as well as a lot of his uh, his Democratic constituents in the state of West Virginia. And, and don't forget, in in uh, 
2016, when um, Bernie Sanders ran against uh, Hillary Clinton, I think West Virginia, maybe outside of Vermont, was the state that Bernie Sanders defeated Hillary Clinton by a wider margin than in any state. Now, one of the key strategies in getting to Joe Manchin is to support the voices of people in West Virginia that he hear from his actual constituents. But that fact that Sanders defeated Clinton so overwhelmingly and was so popular in West Virginia, well, that clearly signifies that there are tens of thousands of people in West Virginia who agree with progressive politics, who want to see the filibuster removed, and also want to see a lot brought back to West Virginia through a progressive infrastructure package. So there's a real opportunity to uh, work with organizations that are helping mobilize the voices of people in West Virginia for them to petition Joe Manchin. I encourage everybody listening to look into that and to participate in that manner. And of course, PDA is directly involved in such things. And so, yes, I think there's tremendous disgust in West Virginia with the neoliberal Democratic Party, progressive Democratic, empowered progressive Democratic Party, uh, I think would be very popular with the people of West Virginia. Yeah, I think, uh, and that's a that's a, a a good way to understand where Joe Manchin comes from. Joe Manchin comes out of a kind of New Deal Democratic background, out of a union-powered Democratic Party that ran the whole state uh, in the 50s and 60s. The Democratic Party that he's objected to is, as you say, the Clinton-Obama Democratic Party, which has uh, no future, uh, certainly in West Virginia and now apparently anywhere else either. Well, my understanding is Manchin's have been on the conservative wing of the West Virginia Democratic Party for a long time and a really sort of establishment figure in that regard. Uh, after all, it was the Democratic Party that was in power all the time that Manchin was ascendant that was sort of betraying the working classes of West Virginia. So uh, it really be, be a new approach. But, you know, let's let's uh, remind uh, Joe Manchin of uh, the kind of politics that will uh, be appealing to the people of West Virginia. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Stop Enbridge Line 3. That was the demand of hundreds of protesters engaging in mass nonviolent civil disobedience in northern Minnesota on Monday and Tuesday of this week, where activists led by Native American water protectors blocked the construction of the Alberta tar sands pipeline that would bring the world's dirtiest oil across northern Minnesota to a depot in Superior, Wisconsin, where my mother grew up. We talked about this uh, last week, but what's happened since then is that dozens of people uh, were arrested, sending a message to Joe Biden. They did get, get this story and the big story in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Joe Biden, of course, has the power to withdraw the construction permits for the pipeline. He stopped the, the Keystone pipeline. We think he should do the same uh, uh, with Enbridge Line 3. And I did not know this until the last couple of days, but the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland. Deb Haaland, in 2016, she joined the Standing Rock protest in North Dakota, the people who camped out for months in opposition to the Dakota Access oil pipeline. Uh, what do we know about Deb Haaland? I know a lot about Deb Haaland. Um, have a great relationship with her former climate staffer, who now is working in Cori Bush's office. And just the fact that PDA, because we're really uh, affiliated with the, what people would, would, would see as the you know, progressive side of the environmental movement, um, and that we have an ally um, with her former staffer, really speaks volumes to how serious she is about uh, supporting uh, the ending of fossil fuel production. And of course, she is adamant uh, 
in, uh, in supporting uh, the rights and is an advocate for the indigenous people in North America. She herself is American Indian, and she's the first uh, indigenous woman to be the head of the Secretary of the Interior. And so, um, you know, on both of these fronts, in a movement that is led by the indigenous tribes of northern Minnesota, there's real hope that Deb Holland will speak out in support of the demonstrators and against uh, the continued uh, construction of Enbridge Line 3. Um, and again, I encourage everybody to look into this, to consider a uh, summer vacation, uh, to go up and be in solidarity with uh, the people, the indigenous people of northern Minnesota who are leading this movement and, um, and participate in something that I'm sure will be um, one of the uh, most inspiring and uh, educational uh, summer vacations you ever take. Uh, John, is it beautiful in northern Minnesota in the summer? Northern Minnesota is a paradise in the summer. The Boundary Waters Wilderness Canoe Area, one of the greatest places on earth. Well, this is the thing, too, that people have to understand about this. This is the headwaters of the Mississippi River. This is the headwaters of the primary artery of uh, the North American continent. Uh, and so the pollutants from uh, this oil construction project Will be will be devastating in terms of how much uh, environmental damage in the classical pollution sense that will occur because of this pipeline, and of course the fact that it facilitates the continued production of the tar sands is devastating to all life on Earth in terms of its impact on uh, anthropogenic climate change. So we have two messages today: stop line three and kill the filibuster. Alan Minsky of Progressive Democrats of America. Thank you, Alan. Oh, thank you, John. And if people want to learn more about PD America, they should check out pdamerica.org or email us at info at pdamerica.org. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Next up, the coming earthquake in Israeli politics. The fall of Netanyahu after 12 years as prime minister will be replaced by a coalition in which right-wing religious nationalists agreed to join with secular moderates and an Israeli Arab Islamist party. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. She was the New Yorker's Jerusalem Bureau chief. She wrote a novel about Palestinians and Jews called Martyr's Crossing. And she's published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The LA Times. And she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. We reached her today at home in Los Angeles. Hi, Amy. Hi, John. Well, this unlikely coalition was provoked by one man... Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So first we have to understand Bibi, as they call him, and why he has provoked such broad opposition. We're told he's just like Trump. He got elected by fostering a cult of personality. He's an authoritarian and a racist and a liar. He panders to the far right. But of course, in some ways, he's not like Trump. First of all, you have to say Trump is like Bibi because who was in power first? So Bibi's been in power for 12 years. Bibi was like that before Trump even appeared. Bibi knows Trump 
And he knows particularly the Kushner family with whom he was tight for a long time. And so, you know, naturally it comes to mind that he's like Trump. Yeah. But the biggest difference is that Bibi actually represents a huge chunk of the Israeli electorate. So if there weren't this handful of religious right parties right now sucking away votes from him, his Likud would probably have garnered far more than 30 seats in the Knesset in the last vote. But the split is this is the split in Israel. So that's the thing. Second, again, he's been in power for 12 years, unlike Trump, so that there is some serious Bibi fatigue in Israel (laughs) among natural supporters. You get to know a guy really well. Eh, You don't like him so much. This guy, there's a lot not to like. He's under uh, suspicion of corruption. There have been many cases brought against him. So he's in big trouble in that he resembles Trump, I guess. But he's seen by people like Naftali Bennett, who has worked closely with him and who is going to be the next prime minister under this new coalition as an obstacle to the rising right wing generation of politicians, especially Bennett himself. So BBC is a threat not only to the ambitions of new politicians, but to the actual right wing agenda itself that Bibi has thought for so long that he represents because of this growing Bibi fatigue. I think that his his personality has not managed to sustain the cult of his personality. I, I mean, he recently and immorally used the time honored method of keeping power. He started a war. More than 200 Palestinians died, a big handful of Israelis died so that Bibi could keep his premiership, but they all died in vain because he's out. So that's not making anyone very happy on either end of the political spectrum in Israel. Yeah, that's the the one way in which Bibi has made Trump look good is that Bibi provoked a war to try to stay in power. Trump just provoked an attack on the Capitol. Very bad, but not quite as bad. He provoked an attack on democracy, but he didn't start World War III with North Korea in spite of his best attempts. Right, right. And we need from you a fast course on Israeli politics. Of course, it's a parliamentary system with lots of little parties that are impossible for Americans to keep track of. No clear majority for a while now. We know the two great historic forces in Israel since its founding have been the labor movement and the religious right. How is this working today? Well, I mean, it's a much more fragmented society, and that is reflected in its parliament. And then the parliament creates each government, each successive government. You've had, I believe, four elections in two years because Bibi has not been able to keep hold of power properly. His his own coalitions keep fragmenting, and then elections are called. So what happens is it after every election in this parliament that's so fragmented with all these micro parties, you have wheeling and dealing to form a majority coalition and to gain the executive seat, i.e. the prime minister's seat. And as we've seen in the current coalition, it's not always the biggest party in a group that gets the prime minister's seat, but instead it can be a little party whose support was most needed and possibly least likely, like uh, Naftali Bennett's Yamina party, which is even farther to the right than Bibi Netanyahu's, but is going to be head of what is perceived as a secular moderate coalition because its majority is secular moderate. But the people who gave it the power to have a majority in the Knesset 
are the little religious right parties. They're not all religious, but they're all right, except for the Islamist party. I learned from reading Aratz, our favorite Israeli newspaper, that this new prime minister-to-be, Naftali Bennett, even though he heads a right-wing religious party, is not really very religious and hasn't always been very right-wing. He doesn't quote the Torah. He doesn't quote the rabbis. He's supposedly a settler leader, but doesn't live in a West Bank settlement. He lives in an upper-class, upper-middle-class Tel Aviv suburb. Uh, He's belonged to five different parties since he entered politics. He should be from New Jersey because that's the kind of politician he is. He's fluid. He's fluid. Uh, I was very interested to learn that his parents are Americans who grew up in the 60s. They were 60s people in San Francisco. They were secular Jews. They were anti-war activists, but they moved to Israel after the 67 war and gradually became more and more religious and right-wing. Bennett, as you've said, is the younger generation on the Likud side. He grew up after the 67 war, which means his life was much more comfortable, much more middle class. He didn't have the existential fears of the founding generation. So even though he's more right wing and more religious than Netanyahu, really he's not, we are told anyway by Haaretz, he's not really that religious and maybe not even that right-wing? Well, we're trying to normalize him here in Haaretz. Haaretz is a secular, moderate left paper. They want it to be okay. They want the coalition to succeed. Um, and they, they even whether want or not want, they come at it from that point of view. I, I would say that what Bennett seems the most like to me is uh, less than a religious zealot, he seems like a super nationalist. And that's yeah. what I think he is. And that's what that generation coming from that kind of background can be if they move to Israel. I mean, that does yeah. tend to harden them in their um, support of the nation. Um, I disagree with you that, that that generation doesn't have the same uh, existential concern about the state that the original Um, fighters for Israel had. I think that the war of the Palestinians against the Israelis gave uh, nationalists and uh, ammunition to uh, feel fear and insecurity in ways they probably didn't need to because they were so well supported and underwritten by the United States, the greatest power on earth at the time, at least. But in any case, he's going to be the first prime minister of Israel to wear a kippah or yarmulke, as we used to say, all the time, like you're going to see him. And to a lot of people, he's going to look a lot more like a straight up, as my children would say, Jew, than Netanyahu does, because he's going to have a, a black keep on his head. And he is far right. What, you know, what's the distinction in the existential question for Israel between Bennett and Netanyahu, except that Bennett seems to be more rational, not have a cult of personality yet, maybe after 12 years. And and the religious right, we see them as embattled against their ideological enemy, the secular left. But I think it's important not to forget that there are political rivalries. And 
And Likud is kind of a monster that's gulped up all the power. And if you're not in good with Likud on the right, then you have a problem. These little guys want some of that, these little parties. Bennett, as I said, would not be PM in a Likud coalition. Never. So we know who would be. Who would be a minister now if Likud had formed a proper coalition, which it was incapable of doing? Uh, it would be Bibi again. So what interest does Yamina or Yisrael Batenu, Avigdor Lieberman's party, still have in Likud? They don't have an interest in Likud. And there is always the chance that the coalition deal with the secularists will not hold and that Bennett will somehow continue as premier beyond his two allotted years, although I don't see how that can happen. But Israeli politics is as much of a snake pit as New Jersey's, as I said, and they're all wheeling and dealing in there still to this very moment. And we have to talk about the biggest earthquake in the history of Israeli politics, an Israeli Arab Islamist party entering the government with the kicker that it's part of a coalition headed by the religious right. This is the first time since the creation of Israel that Palestinians, Muslims, will be part of the government. You have explained that this was necessary, a necessary deal for these smaller parties to get their majority in the Knesset. But let's look at the Palestinian side. Aren't the Islamists selling out? Mansour Abbas is head of the Islamist Party of Israel. And, of course, he's being accused of selling out by Hamas in particular. Abbas, is, isn't he betraying the Palestinian cause to join with the far right, the people who have denied Palestinian rights, who've seized their houses, who've settled the West Bank? First of all, let's say why the party is in this coalition, because they needed four more votes. And Ram, the name of this party, has four more votes. So they needed them to gain that coalition majority in the Knesset and thus the prime minister's office and power. So that's it. They couldn't find anyone else. They took them. So now let's get to the question of sellouts. Okay. Are they selling out? You know, we say Islamist party. And then for the Israelis, we say religious party, far-right religious party. So this is a religious party. And let's not call them Islamists because then we get confused. Did they fly airplanes into the World Trade Center? What's going on? We get very confused. So they're not that. This Islamist party has been electing people to the Knesset for, what, 20 years? Forever. It's It's a well-entrenched party. And they're realists. And they, they know the Israelis. These are Palestinian Israelis, first of all, or Palestinians who live in Israel and their parents before them. Many of them longer than a lot of the Jews in the Knesset, by the way. And their constituency is not really Gaza or even the West Bank, although, of course, they feel a brotherhood, as you said, uh, a Muslim brotherhood with those people, a Palestinian brotherhood, a national brotherhood with them. But their constituency is the Palestinian citizens of Israel. And they're more like pothole legislators than like statesmen right now. And they may make statesmen-like statements, but just the way the whole coalition wants to present itself as a coalition that's going to work on infrastructure and bridges and budgets and, you know, housing and housing and health care. That's what these guys want to do for the Palestinian neglected Palestinian citizens of Israel. 
But that said, of course, it's important for Palestinians everywhere to consider what the inclusion of this party might mean. And I think what it means is that Israel constituted one way, this way, needs them. It needs, all of a sudden, it needs its Arab citizens. You saw Netanyahu understand that during the last election. He started campaigning for the first time in the Arab areas of Israel. So anyway, it's not so surprising that a government in Israel would be composed of the two extremes with a large pile of, quote, moderates in the middle, because that's what Israel is like. Abbas's party does call for evacuating Israel's West Bank settlements. It favors establishing a Palestinian state with a capital in Jerusalem. It argues for giving Palestinian refugees the right of return to Israel. So in all those ways, it's not selling out the Palestinian cause. And maybe I'm a member of that party all of a sudden. <laughs> if I listen to you detail their platform. Okay. But, you know, they are also in a coalition with the Israeli government now. It's going to be hard, but they also want that infrastructure in Israeli Arab towns, and they want housing, and they want the policing of organized crime, which is a big problem in those areas. So I, I think we have to say they have, you know, they have two, two sides of their head, but it doesn't make them two-faced. They're thinking about two major things for, for the place where they live. So the Islamist party that has joined the government is doing this for Palestinians in Israel, not for Palestinians in Gaza. What does this new government mean for Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank? Is there going to be any change in the blockade? Is there going to be any restrictions on expanding settlements? Is there going to be any effort to revive the peace process? We don't know yet because... We don't know what were the encouragements offered to this party by the coalition to get them to join. Easily, they could have said, you know, we've been out of power forever. We can stand to be out of power for another cycle till the next election runs its course, till the next election happens. They didn't need to join, but perhaps they were given certain kinds of encouragement about policy or or about the pothole issues. We don't really know. My guess is Palestinians who are very political and understand pretty well what's going on for them can't be that ecstatic about the Hamas response to Israeli provocation, which then led to Israeli bombings and no movement forward. And they, I think they'll adopt a wait and see policy about this this party in the in the Israeli government. But for the Palestinians, I think their real response to the coalition taking away power from Bibi is like, meh, they're still Israelis. They still hate us. We still don't have our homeland. None of the policies that Ram is, stands for is going to really be the policy of the Israeli government. So more of the same, more obfuscation on behalf of Israel in front of the world community because Israel wants to be left alone and go about its own policies. I don't think the Palestinians feel any great surge of optimism with Bibi out of power. One last thing. This is a coalition in which the bigger party, the moderate secular party, is headed by a guy named Lapid. He's supposed to, they're supposed to rotate the prime ministership and he's supposed to take become the prime minister in two years. And he has always favored a two-state solution. He wants to open regional talks. He wants talks with the Palestinian Authority. He wants a land deal for the West, on the West Bank. 
Uh, he wants a separate Palestinian state and a separate Jewish state. But he won't be prime minister for two years. And of course, this is a very unstable coalition that Bibi is going to be trying to destroy in the meantime. Let's talk about the likelihood of this coalition surviving for two years until Lapid can take the office he's been promised. Well, first of all, it would be mistaken to think that Lapid can do what he wants once he's prime minister. Yes. Um, although having the having the premiership and the majority is good, and that's why he had to give it to um, Bennett first. Will he get the prime minister's seat in two years? If Bennett can last for two years, I believe that Yair Lapid will be the next prime minister of Israel. If there's another war for some reason, I don't know. I don't think Bibi, if he hasn't been able to stop this coalition from being sworn in, which I believe they will be sworn in this week. I don't think he can break up this thing. I don't know if he's going to be the head of Likud. I don't know what power he's really going to wield. Amy Willens, our expert on Israeli politics. Amy, thanks for helping us today. I hope I have. <laughs> Thank you, Jenna. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for TV Talk with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, the LA Times op-ed page, and lots of other places. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. Well, we have a lot of political misery out there this week, thanks to Joe Manchin. So I wonder if you can recommend something on TV that is fun and not about voting rights in America. Yes, indeed. On both counts, I can recommend something. Um, some of our listeners may already be on the ball with this one because it's a French, I guess, caper, heist caper is the best way to call it, that has actually um, been on Netflix um, since January of this year, was a huge, enormous hit in its home country of France. It's called Lupin on this side of the pond and uh, presumably Lupin in its home country. And it stars the French comedian Omar Sy, who is the son of Senegalese immigrants and uh, a very well-known French comedian. He may, some of our listeners may have seen him in a film called The Intouchables a few years ago, um, which was also a huge uh, hit in France. It's about the friendship between a severely disabled white man and his black caregiver. And uh, in fact, Omar Sy had moved to Hollywood for a while to pursue a career here. And he went back to France to make this series, um, which was created by George Kay from the heist movies, heist books of uh, Maurice Leblanc. It's about a son of Senegalese immigrants who works as a cleaner at the Louvre. <laughs> museum. Uh, and at the beginning of the movie, he's pulling off the heist of a very expensive um, necklace, a priceless necklace that used to belong to Marie Antoinette and has, <laughs> I know this sounds ridiculous, um, has been worn by the uh, matrons of several uh, rich families. 
the heist doesn't quite work for in, which works for very good uh, to the great advantage um, of this cleaner whose name is Asan Diop. He, his father, 25 years earlier, was accused of stealing that very necklace and was imprisoned and dreadful things happened to him afterwards. Um, so there's two stories going but on. But he about. is innocent of this. The father was falsely accused. I am going to say nothing about this. Okay. <laughs> um, maybe falsely, who, who might have been falsely accused. Anyway, things went very badly for him. And now Asan, his son, um, wants to uh, both avenge um, his father's uh, imprisonment and also get a little rich himself. So um, he uh, pretends to be a very rich guy who um, buys the necklace at auction, even though he doesn't have a penny to his name. I won't go into the technical part of that. Uh, and there follows, uh, you know, several episodes of Caper uh, in which he loses and, and gains it. It's very funny. It's also very heartfelt. And it also has um, some very serious overtones that have to do with race and class and poverty and rich people and the relations between them. Uh, but it's done in a very um, kind of amusing and subtle way, which is that every time somebody is either afraid of Hassan because he's now six feet two uh, and very black, or they're hostile towards him or rude towards him, he just very gently questions, asks them to repeat what they've just said and so on, so that they expose themselves in in this way. Um, he, both the character and the actor are from the, the banlieue, the, the suburbs of, of Paris. Um, there's a lot of very beautiful running around Paris, um, a lot of wonderfully farcical scenes, one of them involving pizza delivery, which I won't elaborate on here, but it's all very, very well done. And there's an interesting backstory to it, which is that just for a lark, Omar Sy went into the Paris Metro and put up his own post posters for the series himself. And it was really actually just as the pandemic started, because he was wearing a mask, although he's an extremely visible figure in France, nobody recognized him because he was wearing a mask and seemed to be putting up these posters for a heist. So he got some very negative um, responses or people didn't notice that he was there at all, which served to illustrate his major theme, which is about the invisibility of people who have no social power. So uh, I've just finished re-watching um, season one, which is available now on, on Netflix. And season two begins this Friday, June 11th. Um, and if it's anything like season one, it's already been renewed for season three. It should be really good, amusing watching with a very serious purpose behind it. He's a wonderfully um, versatile actor. He began life as a comedian and he said in an interview that like many comics, I think, um, having been greeted with either indifference or hostility as a kid, he found that one way to get over that was with humor. Now his Senegalese respectable 
parents were not too pleased when he announced that he was thinking of becoming a comedian. But of course, you know, I assume that they have ended up as rich as he as he was, and they've actually retired back in their in their home country, which they greatly prefer. Um, so that's been been his theme um, in the series. He has a white wife and a, a biracial child. Um, he's about whom who he loves very much, but he's been rather irresponsible about. In real life, he has a white wife and five kids, who apparently is very responsible about. So it's really. Uh, very highly recommended. I've, I've uh, enjoyed it enormously. Lupin season two opens on Netflix Friday. Okay, so much for a fun adventure story starring a comedian. How about something serious? Well, this is quite serious. Um, it's a documentary called Nasreen, which has been playing actually for a while, uh, but now it's widely available on most of the usual uh, VOD platforms, including Amazon, YouTube, and uh, you know the usual collection that we go over this time. So there's no shortage of place, places to see it. It's a documentary about the Iranian civil rights and women's rights lawyer, uh, Nasreen Sutudeh, um, who is a very wonderful, very brave woman. Um, and it's directed by Jeff Kaufman, whose work I'm not familiar with, um, and narrated by the, act the British actress Olivia Colman. And um, he begins the documentary by pointing out that Iran is a very interesting case when it comes to women and gender and women's civil rights, because um, women have had civil rights since 530 BC, wow. in Iran, which could not be said for <laughs> most Western countries, to put it very mildly. But all that changed in 1979 with the Iranian revolution, where women were shoved back home. Um, today, they do. They have many rights, including the right to work in professional occupations, doctors and lawyers, of whom Nasreen Sutudeh is one. Uh, but they are forced to wear the, the hijab, and there's been a protest against that, which she, she has defended several women who took their hijabs off in public and staged a protest and were arrested as a result. Her, spe her own specialty has been broader in human rights. She's defended abused children and ethnic minorities in Iranian, uh, in particular Kurdish citizens and Baha'i citizens. And uh, she, in particular, is involved in issues um, regarding the representation of, um, of modern women. Um, she's friends with Shirin Abadi, who is another crusader for women's rights in Iran. She's a former banker, actually, who gravitated towards activism. She has an extremely supportive husband named Reza, who is really quite extraordinary. They have a couple of kids. And as a result of having uh, represented these women, she was arrested in, in 2018 uh, and sentenced to 38 years in prison and 148 lashes. Now, now it's been commuted, although she's expected, or she's expected to serve only 12 years, quote unquote, only, uh, with only 70 lashes. Uh, and her husband was arrested as well for supporting her. 
Uh, the kids had to be looked after by relatives of theirs. He was subsequently freed. The one difficulty that I've had with this documentary and others is its, ten its insistence at great length of portraying Ms. Sue today as a saint, as well as a courageous, highly politicized, politicized woman. So we see lots of scenes of um, her uh, buying gifts for friends, kids, her great appreciation for art, how she's a wonderful mother, uh, and how she uh, took an ice bucket challenge for women's rights. We see her making dolls um, for uh, poor women and so on. And he pushes this line very, very hard. And I have a problem with this, just as I do um, with memorializing victims of shootings, is that they suddenly become irreproachable saints. And, and perhaps that's harmless in its way, but I don't think it is because it misses the point of the fact that their victim status would be just as heinous and the crimes against them just as heinous if they were grumpy, surly, ugly, ugly um, or just generally not very nice people. Um, you know, it's the same with the, the cult of Anne Frank, the tragedy of Anne Frank and all the other kids who died at the hands of the Nazis were not that they were perfect little angels. She was very far from it, actually. Um, but the fact that it happened to innocent people. And, and I think that weakens the documentary enormously because we don't get a sense, really, of the crucial question at the heart of this is, what is it that that motivates the small number of heroes in totalitarian societies to stand up for what they see is right, even if it means that their lives and their, even the lives of their families are going to be ruined? That, for me, is a much more pressing question <laughs> um, that needs us answering, and I think this documentary misses the opportunity to do that. It's still worth seeing. She's a very impressive person, there's no question, but I rather doubt She's a saint. Margaret Atwood says, I urge you to see this timely and important film. Nazreen, the documentary about Iran's leading women's rights activist, available now on most VOD platforms. Uh, finally, Pride Month continues in Hollywood and on TV, and we have promised more picks for our listeners. Yes, this is a very charming um and a sweet film from the Israeli director Eitan Fox, who made a number of films that have been well received at film festivals all over and in uh, in in theaters in this country. One was Yossi and Jagger. Uh, there was a sequel to that called Yossi about a gay man um, negotiating his way through the um, Israeli army and then subsequently as a civilian. He also made a very good thriller called Walk on Water um, about an Israeli Mossad agent played by the very gorgeous Lior Ashkenazi um, who uh, goes to Germany to hunt down um, uh, a former Nazi. So he already has a name. This is one of this is one of his more minor films, but it's very, very delightful, not least because it's not set in Jerusalem like most Israeli films. The film is called Sublet, um, and you can see it at the Lemley Theatres, the Royal um, Town Centre and Pasadena uh, in the LA area. And then it will be, it will come to VOD in sometime in July, as they haven't said when exactly. 
And the premises are that after a loss in his life, a gay American travel writer who's Jewish comes to Tel Aviv to get over this loss and um, and begin writing again because he's stalled. And he sublets, hence the title, an apartment from a young, uninhibited, uncommitted gay male Israeli. The interesting thing about the movie is that that is it's taken completely casually. This is a story about um, a mostly platonic relationship between two men and there's no, there's no axe to grind about the fact that there is gay life in Tel Aviv is taken completely for granted. And it's quite conventional, but it gives a, um, as they tool around Tel Aviv, because the young man is offered to uh, show the older one, both of them wrestle with uh, central problems in their own lives, and they help each other to solve these problems. That's a little corny, there's no question about it. And it's a very um, sentimental film in some ways, because they each one helps the other to move on from a, a, a stuck position. So it's recommended. Sublet, the Israeli film about a gay New York Times travel writer in Tel Aviv. It's playing now at Lemley Theatres and will be on VOD in July. Ella Taylor covers film and TV for us. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure as always, John. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.